Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, March 1st. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the water crisis in the capital city continues as residents face prolonged outages. City officials weigh in. Then the coronavirus vaccination rollout accelerates following delays brought on by last month's winter storm. Plus, analysis of the Mississippi Tax Freedom Act. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Residents in parts of the capital city have been without running water for nearly two weeks. Jackson's water treatment plants were unable to operate during last month's winter storm, and many pipes froze. City officials expected to have the water pressure stabilized and restored over the weekend. Instead, they say the system crashed and lost pressure. Charles Williams, director of public works, says the city is working on a number of breaks. Our crews are working very hard to to get the brakes repaired. So they'll continue to do that. I'm trying to get a crew down to Old Lake and Holly Hill to get a, a, a fire hydrant, an old fire hydrant that is leaking right there that could possibly be taking pressure away from the residents who were trying to get water restored in Brook Lee. One of the biggest efforts that we were trying to accomplish yesterday was we were going along different corridors, Terry, uh, Terry Road, Raymond Road, and McDowell Road, and opened up fire hydrants. And the reason for that is a lot of times when you lose system pressure, a lot of air gets in the line. And so as we're trying to push more water out into the system, uh, we wanted to take some of that air off. And the benefit of it was today we started seeing more water circulating down in, in South Jackson. Uh, primarily I was uh, got a text this morning from Mary Health. And so they're starting to see a little pressure down there. That's a good thing. So the complex nature of it is our system just you know, basically it crashed like a computer, and now we're trying to rebuild it. And so it, it's just the progress has been very slow. The lack of water in some parts of the city is a result of low water pressure in the system. William says system must, the systems must reach a threshold before water can be adequately restored. It is built off hydraulics. And if you're at a higher elevated area, like I've been, uh, like we've been stating, you know, if you're in a higher, like Fonder, and if you're in South Jackson, those higher elevated areas, that's why you need a certain pressure in order to get up to those areas and also push that water down to South Jackson and into Byron. So as we continue to go through this recovery, we're going to continue to go through these particular areas. We're going to continue to open up fire hydrants and get that pressure off so we can continue to get that water circulating. 
and we're going to try and maintain a certain level P that PSI that we need around 90 over the next couple days, build those tanks up, and then we want to start taking the focus off of lifting the boil water notices that, uh, that is currently in effect for the city. Even with new challenges, Williams says the full restoration of water throughout the system is getting closer. He says the focus is now shifting to the most severely affected areas. The good thing is the water has been restored to certain areas. What we're trying to narrow down is where are still those areas that are possibly without water. And right now what we know is there, there are some pockets in West Jackson and there's some pockets that are, I mean, areas in South Jackson. And so that's where we're trying to emphasize right now. If there's other areas, we, can, we ask the residents to please call in and let us know. But there's a large 48-inch uh, that comes around 220, and then there's a 24 that comes down on the east side, and then there's a, a large distribution lines that are 12 and 16s that migrate through the city. So as long as we continue to push water through the system, that our residents are getting water, and we want them to, uh, per compliance. You want to be around 20 psi or higher. All right, and then we can, and if we get our tanks up above a certain level, around 10 feet or higher, then we can start looking at taking those areas off of boil water notice. So that's what we're checking out: is checking all of those particular boxes, and then hopefully we'll be able to move toward lifting that that precautionary boil water notice. Jackson Mayor Shokwai Antar Lumumba says the prolonged water crisis is the result of a domino effect. He says because facilities were forced to shut down during the severe weather, restoration of water services is met with a number of escalating obstacles. I think that it's important, and, and I know that residents are trying to understand, right, this process. You know, they're being patient. Uh, they just they just want to see water, right? Uh, and so I think it's important to start with the understanding that what we have faced and what we have seen as a result of the winter storm, water treatment facilities are not meant to shut down to the level that we experienced, right? And so because they weren't meant to shut down in that way, the process of getting it moving back to where it was prior to the storm is a difficult recovery process. I think also what you've heard Dr. Williams talk about, not only in the efforts to restore PSI here at the treatment facility itself, uh, but the issues that, have, that we have faced create a domino effect of other subsequent issues that, that we, we then deal with. City officials are continuing to urge residents who have water to practice conservation until the system can reach the pressure needed to fully service all parts of the city. During a press conference yesterday, Director Williams said it's all part of the recovery effort. As those residents who are restoring, who have, the, who have their water restored, we are asking them to please, you know, uh, conserve uh, until we can get through this. Uh, you know, we're just asking for a little bit more time. Uh, but, you know, if you can delay washing your car or just some other things that you normally would do, you know, we're just actually just conserving. Why should they conserve it? Well, we're still trying to build this system. And any time that you take away or if you're at a car wash and, and you know, you're, you're utilizing that water, uh, it takes away from the system as far as building it. So, you know, it's, it's a re we're in a recovery effort, and we need everybody's participation right now uh, to get through this. Mayor Lumumba is calling residents who can help to do so. He also says he's been pleased with the community aid offered throughout the crisis. We're asking residents who have the means and the availability to support their neighbors to do so. Uh, I'd like to say that I am happy to see that that has been happening uh, in, a, in a, a very um, 
uh, large way across the city. I've seen residents not only passing out bottled water, uh, I've seen residents who are cooking meals and providing them to other residents. Uh, obviously, the ability to cook is affected by access to water. I've seen residents uh, find different tanks, whether it's people who uh, normally wash cars and are using their tanks to provide the non-potable water. Uh, and so I'm grateful to what is taking place. I've seen businesses uh, who have provided water uh, to pass out to the residents, churches, uh, ones that have reached out to me and reached out to other individuals. And I'd like to encourage our Jackson constituents, our Jackson residents, to continue to support each other in those ways. Jackson Mayor uh, Shokwe Antalamumba. Coming up, the coronavirus vaccination rollout accelerates following delays brought on by last month's winter storm. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Mississippians may soon have another option for a coronavirus vaccine that only requires one shot. The new Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine has been approved for emergency use by the FDA. Johnson & Johnson's study revealed the one-dose vaccine overall is 66% effective at preventing moderate to severe illness. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, which require two doses, are around 95% effective at preventing COVID-19. State epidemiologist Dr. Paul Byers says the introduction of a new vaccine could create a higher total allocation of shots and give a choice. You know, we're probably looking at at close to about 60,000 doses next week, a bit a bit more than that. Amazing. Um, and then because of the reclaim, so is, is reclaim? <clears throat> no, that's just going to be our, our, our allocation for, for, for next week. That's, a, that's going to be a new allocation. So that, that's good. That gives us an opportunity to spread those doses around more. But then when you add the potential uh, doses for Johnson & Johnson, which may be available by, by next week, we'll have to wait and see what eventually comes out on that. You know, that'll just be another, another uh, tool in our toolkit another vaccine to be able to to distribute out and uh you know one of the things we want to be careful of though is is we want make we want people to be aware and know what vaccine that they're getting right um you know we've although the the Pfizer and Moderna are not interchangeable they are in their efficacy data by mark and so you know it, it really hasn't mattered as much you get a vaccine now we want people to know that that you're getting a Johnson and Johnson and, and what goes with that. But uh, I think that there'll be some interest in, in that and the one dose. Mississippi's vaccination effort was in rebound mode last week after severe weather shut down many of the health department's drive through vaccination sites. The storm also slowed down testing throughout the state. Health officials say canceled vaccination appointments were made up smoothly and the rollout remains efficient. But cases of COVID-19 ticked up last week after a period of steady decline. Health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs says he's worried there could be some complacency among residents and warrants of a potential rise nationwide. 
we have done this twice now, where everybody was overly optimistic and and behaved rashly, right? So can we learn after twice to be more cautious? Twice burned. Yeah. So let's just go ahead and I mean it's enthusi it's 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 optimistic that we have vaccine going. That's a good thing. Um, we still have a lot of susceptible people out there. You know, only about 12% of Mississippians have received one dose of vaccine. Uh, we have spring break coming up. And so I really encourage everyone to keep doing what you're doing now. Wear a mask in public, avoid social gatherings. Really don't travel during spring break to speak of, you know. Um, keep it sort of, you know, small and outdoors. But I don't think we can say anything until about a week after spring break to see what kind of trends we're going to see because. That's what we've seen over and over again is when people travel, when people go and visit family and they're running around, that's when we see our, our increases. So let's just be patient. And, and I think, you know, we've got we've to see what, what really it's going to be like. The, the weather event really, I think, is going to impact not only the, the, the transmission, but, but also uh, the cases that were reported. And I think we saw that a little bit because we saw a downturn. And then toward the end of the week, we've seen... We've seen more cases reported. I think we need to we need to get back past that too, because that was that was sort of an artificial um, pressure on on the transmission. I think we need to see what we're really going to be like, uh, and and we'll probably settle out. Both Dobbs and Byers say even with a vaccine, traditional mitigation efforts are still necessary to combat transmission of the virus. Dobbs says a vaccine will not lead to a level of herd immunity that completely eradicates the virus. Let's talk about herd immunity. What, what do we typically think about herd immunity? We typically think herd immunity means that no virus can get a foothold. If you have enough people vaccinating against measles, you can't have sustained transmission. Right. If you have small, you know, if you have like like we had smallpox, that's why we got rid of it is because we it couldn't sustain its transmission. But in the context of coronavirus, what are we talking about? I mean, I, I think the best that we can hope for. I, I don't think that we can achieve um, herd immunity in in sort of the same context that we're talking about with with something like measles or smallpox. I think what we're looking for is a reduction in the potential for transmission and protection of the most vulnerable population and reduction of the potential for severe outcomes, hospitalizations, and deaths. Maybe we can prevent massive outbreaks and sort of like these huge trends, but it's hard to imagine in the near future preventing sizable outbreaks. So there, even with good penetration of the vaccine, we still need to take some safety measures. Which and, and when you think about it in the context of something like measles, too, when, when we get vaccinated with measles, we have lifelong, long-term immunity. Um, and measles is not changing the way that we see um, coronavirus or flu change. And I think when we look at what are our goals for <coughs> vaccination with, for, for COVID, I think that flu is a, is, a, is a good one to look at and what are our goals with that, too. And I think... Thomas is right. We want to um, we want to mitigate transmission, but we want to protect that vulnerable population, um, and that and that's why um, I think that that's really what our goal has got to be. I'm not certain at this point that that our goal needs to be an interruption of all transmission of COVID. I think that we need to get to a manageable point at this. 
Starting today, teachers, school staff, and first responders can begin getting the coronavirus vaccine. Coming up, an analysis of the Mississippi Tax Freedom Act. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. Last week, House Republicans introduced the Mississippi Tax Freedom Act, a comprehensive tax reform bill that would eliminate the personal income tax, reduce the grocery tax, and raise the sales tax. Advocates say the reform plan will create new economic opportunities in the state. But some analysts say the plan could be ineffective. Meg Weehy is Deputy Executive Director at the Institute of Taxation and Economic Policy. In part one of her conversation with our Michael Guidry, Weehy breaks down the state's current tax structure and examines who will be most affected by the changes. Mississippi currently has what what we would call an upside-down tax code. That means that it requires more from low- and middle-income taxpayers than, than wealthier households in terms of paying taxes as a share of their income. Um, while the wealthiest taxpayers would consider the, the top 1% pay roughly 6.7% of their income in state and local taxes, the poorest um, residents in the state pay 10.2% of their income in state and local taxes, and middle-income residents pay even more at 10.8%. So that's what we mean by, by upside-down. It's, it's a tax code that, um, that asks more from those, um, from those with uh, the least to give. And the primary driver for, um, for that difference um, is the state already has an outsized reliance on, on sales and excise taxes. Um, outsized, um, if you compare it just to how much revenue the state collects from the personal income tax, about 44% of the revenue collected in Mississippi comes from, um, from sales taxes and roughly about 30% from the personal income tax. But that's also outsized compared to um, compared to other states. That that difference is is quite quite notable. Um, the state also already has um, one of it has the second highest um, sales tax rate in the country at seven percent, and of course is one of only a handful of states that fully taxes um, food and groceries um, at that at that rate of seven percent. You mentioned the the upside down kind of structure. Uh, one place where that upside-down structure doesn't appear to exist is in the personal income tax, where it does look like the top 1% is paying the most currently, 3.4% of of their income versus only 0.2% of, of the lowest 20%'s income. But I bring that up because that is the focus of this new tax bill that the Mississippi House introduced and passed, uh, and that is a, a gradual elimination of the personal income tax. Based on where Mississippi is and what this bill proposes, uh, what could a change like that do? Well, 
that change, I mean, you're absolutely right. The personal income tax in Mississippi, while, while could be improved, and in fact, I think any lawmaker who, who really cares about or wants to focus on equity and the state's tax code should be looking to, to do more to tap the personal income tax as a way to both um, raise more adequate revenue needed for, for broad, broad investments, um, but also to really offset that impact that the over-reliance on sales and excise taxes have on low- and middle-income taxpayers in the state. Um, so eliminating, I, I should step back and say that um, all, but, all but the richest 15% of taxpayers in the state, so the vast majority of taxpayers, currently pay more of their income in that general sales tax um, than they do in personal income tax because of exactly as you said it's it's graduated it really is it's a it's an important tool in Mississippi and really in any state as well as at the federal level um, to um, to build a more um, equitable tax structure that ensures that that wealthier households are paying a higher um, share of their income in state and local taxes um, and that we're not over-relying on, on low- and middle-income households. There is an important balance between um, equity and adequacy. States need, need revenue to be able to, um, to invest in education and healthcare and in infrastructure, and Mississippi, I think, has long underinvested in those important, um, important services that really help to grow the economy. Um, but, but the focus on the personal income tax is the tax to eliminate from an equity viewpoint, I think is just um, really irresponsible and wrong-sided. You mentioned tax revenue being needed for things like education, things like health care. And you mentioned the, the sales tax being a, a heavy burden on low and middle income earners. The proposal does increase the general sales tax and excise tax on certain items. It reduces the grocery tax over time in half from 7% to 3.5%. And then, you know, as we mentioned, the the uh, gradual elimination of the state income tax. As far as, you know, maintaining revenue that's needed to fund things as they currently are, is there is there a window in this plan that makes it revenue neutral where what is lost in the in the state income tax is, is being made up elsewhere, or is it potential that Mississippi will be looking at a donut hole in revenue that it's going to have to fill later on? Yeah, I think this plan is is designed as really a double whammy, um, particularly compared to you know, the the governor's plan is you know, just to eliminate the income tax um, and not make it up with um, with additional revenue, which is also highly problematic because of the state um, state needing revenue for um, for important public investments. Um, but this plan, you know, it, while it does, and that's sort of in the first step um, of just eliminating the first fifty and a hundred thousand fifty for um, fifty thousand for single taxpayers and a hundred thousand for married um, taxpayers from the personal income tax, and then increasing the the sales tax rate to um, to nine percent, and as you said, cutting the grocery in half. That initial step is some close to close to revenue neutral. But as because the plan also calls for a 10-year elimination, a gradual elimination of the income tax, each year that you're cutting away at the income tax will mean that there's less revenue available. And once fully implemented, there could be a shortage of revenue anywhere between, um, as our organization estimated, from $750 million to a $1 billion. So that's, that's a significant revenue loss. 
And then the reason I call it a double whammy is this plan does actually increase taxes on the state's um, poorest um, and, and moderate income income households. Those are households, as we've just talked about, that, that don't pay as much in personal income tax, but pay significantly more of their income in state um, in state tax, or, sorry, in state sales taxes. And um, we're going to be relying even more on sales taxes under this plan. It's a great step to recognize um, that you know, being one of the few states in the country to tax um, to tax food at the full rate, re- reducing that in half, um, you know, is is a is a good step to to more equity in the tax code. But it's simply not enough to offset the the hike in the sales tax rate to nine um, to nine percent, nine point five percent. That would actually make it the highest um, state sales tax in the country. In part two of our conversation with Meg Weehy. There is absolutely nothing about the lack of a personal income tax in a state like Texas or a state like Florida that makes it more competitive um, than, a, than a, even, even a state like California or New York that has a stronger reliance on, on personal income taxes. There's, there's no sort of competitive edge to how their economy is performing. That's tomorrow on Mississippi Edition here on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.